0: I'm excited to teach this class today. I'm excited because when I was a young boy, and uh, Becky and I looked at each other as the ministers were being presented today, and we looked at each other, and we said, we're eight years from being in the senior citizen category. (laughs) And we just started laughing out loud at church, and everyone looked at us like we were... Not senior citizens, but impudent little children, but the, um, which is how we feel. Um, when I was a little boy, I was talking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was speaking with my youth minister about it. He was a good man and, and a wonderful youth minister, and I'm very thankful to God for him. But in the process, I said, you know, I think I want to go get my seminary degree. And from there, I want to go to Harvard Divinity School and get my Ph.D., And uh, really be a a leader in in Christian teaching and whatever. And he said to me, oh, don't ever do that. I said, what? He said, no, people who go to Harvard Divinity School and some of these higher education institutions of Christian learning, they they all lose their faith. I said, what? He said, yeah, just trust me. Don't ever go. So I thought, well, I'll go to law school where all the Christians hang out. Um, <laughs> so the uh, – <laughs> I got to tell you, yesterday afternoon I gave a – or last, last night, I guess, 5 o'clock, I gave the keynote address at a convention of lawyers in in Las Vegas. There were 2,500 lawyers in that room. And I thought, I can't wait to get to Sunday school tomorrow morning to get to speak to them. (laughs) Why did John Paul tell me that? Well, let's talk about it some, okay? We're going to talk about this. We're going through church history. We're in the age of reason right now. The age of reason really was concerned uh, uh, in in a sense that we want to focus on today with who or what, decides what is true. You know, we talked about it last week with Descartes and and how he asked the question, how do I know what's real and what's not? It goes back before him. Plato asked the same question. Philosophers through the age of philosophy have all been concerned with this question, how do I know what's real and what's true? Plato was the one who originally said, you know... If you think about it, if you were in a cave and there was a fire in the cave and you were in front of the fire and you were looking at the fire, that's one thing. But if you had your back to the fire and you were looking at the wall, you would see your shadows on the wall. And you would probably think those shadows were real if you had no other knowledge. But in fact, they're merely projected shadows. And he was asking the question, how do we know what's real? How do we know what's true? How do we know if our faith is true? How do we know if there is a God? How do we know if what we're doing is any more than the matrix dream? Well, this has been something that's concerned people for a long time. And not just how do we know what's real, but how do we know what's true? How do we know our faith is true? As opposed to the faith of the guys that have the angel with the bugle on top down the street, the the uh, Moroni? How do we know that what we're teaching here is accurate versus what's being taught at another institution or at another place? How do we know? How do I know that my faith is real if I go to Harvard Divinity School and I'm taught something that would lead many people to unbelief? Well, Historically, as we've studied church history, there have been differing views to this. The view of the Catholic Church has been a historical view that it's the church that decides what's true. If you want to know what's true, the church makes that decision. Now, Does that mean the Catholics don't believe in Scripture? Well, no, of course not. Does that mean the Catholic Church doesn't believe in tradition? No, of course not. But it's the church, in the Catholic view, that governs. And interprets scripture. The Catholic Church would teach. That it is the church that determines what scripture is. It was the church that put together the Bible. It's the church that interprets the Bible. And it's the church that's the author of history and tradition within the Christian faith. And so for the Catholic view. The church is the ultimate trump card. It's the church that establishes truth. If you want to know truth, ultimately, you need to know what the church position is on an issue. You with me? Okay. Now we come to the Reformation movement. The Reformation view is that it's not the church that establishes truth. If you want to know what's true, you read the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible, through the Holy Spirit is the ultimate decider of truth. That's the final trump card. Sola Scriptura would be the Latin. It is only the Bible, the scriptures. That's what decides truth. Now, we reached last week the point where we started talking about modern man and the modern mindset. And the father of modern thought Most people recognize as René Descartes. And we see ushering in what's called the age of reason. It also has the enlightenment within it. And these are fuzzy terms that different people define differently and that's fine. But the the thrust of the term is that reasoning... Logic alone decides truth. The church does not decide truth. It's not the Bible with the Holy Spirit that decides truth. It's plain, cold, calculated. Two plus two equals four. Logic. That defines truth. If you want to know what is true and what's not, you reason it out. We are children of the Enlightenment. Most of us, not all of us. We've got some young kids in here. You and your brother would not be considered modern thinkers. When you get older, you're going to be part of what's called the postmodern generation. Because postmodernism, which has started creeping into Western culture, most people say in the 1960s, doesn't necessarily think the same way. But from the 1600s through at least the 1960s, the general frame of reference for most people in Western civilization is reason or rationality is going to tell us what's true. Think about it. This is a lot of what's within our bones. When we want to compare our doctrine to the doctrine of the Mormons... We want to do it through reason and rationality often. When we want to know, does God exist? For most of us, we're looking for an intellectual confirmation of his existence. We want a well-reasoned, articulated argument that lets us have beyond my law school training here, any reasonable doubt, a conviction mentally, that when we die, someone's on the other side of the grave. Lewis and Michelle just walked in. I'm going to digress for just a moment and say, if you were in our worship service, that incredible young man that led those 300 school-aged kids up there in worship is their son I coached Stephen in basketball starting in first grade, and I really worked on him to be able to do that (laughs) by making sure he didn't become a professional basketball player. Um, I just, I mean, I was moved to the point of tears this morning seeing that talented, gifted young man up there using his gifts for the Lord, and I commend you as parents. Um, Okay, Louis and Michelle, here's what we're talking about. We want to know how you decide what's real, how you decide what's true, and how we think about that. The Catholic Church did it by uh, the church. The church decides it. church decides what the Bible is. church interprets the Bible. The church authors tradition. Reformation came in and said, no, it's not going to be the church. It's going to be Scripture through the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the age of reason came in. The Enlightenment, modern man, this is where your children are. And modern thought says, no, it's going to be cold, hard logic. And that's where we are. And I had just challenged the class to think about it. When I say, do you want proof of God's existence? All of us start thinking, yes, I want the mathematical formula. I want the logic. I want the reasoned approach that will justify in my mind that there is a God. Because we determine truth as modern man Generally, by reasonable, rational, logical thought. Two plus two equals four. The author of this, by and large, is generally recognized as John Locke. He wrote a defense, if you will, of Christianity. Entitled, The Reasonableness of Christianity in 1695. And we mentioned this briefly last week. But John Locke is very pivotal. Don't get me wrong. I, I look out here and I see State Representative Patricia Harless. Uh, Debbie Riddle, another state rep's not here today, but she usually is. And they go to a lot of political functions. And in a lot of political functions, especially within our movement, John Locke is held up as a wonderful example of one of the people that the founding fathers looked to who was also very Christian in his approach. And there is truth to that. But it's a lot more complicated than that because John Locke was a very complicated individual. And what John Locke did was a very subtle shift in the way we think. And not necessarily something to be applauded. John Locke came forward and he changed Christian Thought, if you will, or modern thought. Before John Locke, we studied Thomas Aquinas in this class. For Thomas Aquinas, reasoning, logic, rational thought was important, but it was a tool that was used in the hands of faith. In other words, when you have your faith in God, you use your reason and you use rational thought as a tool to help you further understand God, to help you further understand yourself, to help you further understand the world around us. But reasoning was a tool, an appropriate tool, for we have a God of reason. Jesus is the word, but when John wrote that, he used logos, which is what logic comes from. We have a God of reason, but reason was always a tool to be used in the hands of the faithful. For John Locke, it was different. John Locke writes, and for John Locke, reason, rationality, logical thought is the ultimate judge of your faith and of revelation. And while John Locke used reasoning to justify scripture, if you read it, and you read his writings themselves, you see religion becoming almost an intellectual exercise more than it is a relationship with the divine. I've got to tell you, I'm in the middle of a trial right now. We've been in trial for a while and we've got a couple more weeks to go. That means I'm away from home. Except on, on weekends. And uh, I email with Becky. Becky. And I talked to Becky on the phone. We have an intellectual discourse with each other on a daily basis. But it's different than being in her presence. There's a difference between being able to write to your children or email them, as we do now with Gracie, and having her there at the supper table, even if the words are the same. There's a difference between an intellectual discourse and a relationship. And when you read John Locke, he's taken religion, and by taking religion and and putting it in a car that's driven simply by rational reasoned thought, he's got a vehicle that, that doesn't drive quite right. And when you read him, you'll really see nothing about the Trinity in what he says. You'll see nothing about Jesus as Savior who died to restore us in a relationship with God. Jesus is a rah-rah moral cheerleader almost. Because that from a rational thought is where he landed. Now he had, here's here's a problem. And I've discussed this in class before, but but we have, uh, human beings have this, Several tendencies uh, uh, that that we're going to talk about today. One of our tendencies is when a teacher teaches something, the students have a tendency to take that teacher's thought a lot further than the teacher ever would. You know, the teacher may say, okay, I'm willing to give you this much. But the students will say, well, if that's true, then here's the logical conclusion. And they'll take it to its logical conclusion, to its extreme. Have you noticed that? Kids do that too. Um, that happens with Locke. There was a fella, an Irish fella, who was a smart guy named John Tolan. He saw Locke as his mentor. Told everybody, Locke is my mentor. Locke would say, No, I'm not. I don't like where you took me. Tolan would say, Well, tough. You are my mentor. I took you where you belonged. You just weren't willing to go that far. Because you used reason. And said, I'm going to use reason to determine what's true in the matters of faith and religion and scripture. And I'm going to take it to its logical conclusion. And so Toland writes a, 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 a huge work entitled, Christianity is not mysterious. Okay, now I've got to take a time out here. Because I just want to sit here and say, okay... I'd call him doofus, but that's probably not polite. Okay, sir. Do you read your Bible? Let's just take, oh, say, a short little book we're studying under Pastor Fleming on Sunday morning. Ephesians. Christianity is not a mystery. It's not mysterious. What did Paul say in Ephesians? God made known the mystery of His will. The mystery made known. The mystery of Christ. The mystery that brings together Jews and Gentiles. The mystery that was hidden in God. The profound mystery of Christ and His church. The mystery of the gospel. But this is blasphemy to the age of reason. How dare there be mystery? There can't be mystery. We can figure it out. And so he writes, and he says, whoever reveals anything, his words must be intelligible. I got to understand him. And the matter, whatever he's saying, has to be possible. It has to make sense. It has to be reasonable. It has to be logical. It has to be something possible. And this rule holds good whether God's the revealer or man. You can say God's revealing it, but if it's not something I can understand, and it's not something that is possible by my definition of possible, then God is wrong. You see, that's a profound shift in thought. And he took it a step further. He said, if reasoning has been around since the dawn of time, Christianity It's just kind of a temporal phase. Because what's possible, what we can think of and what's real, what's intelligible and what's possible, what we can think of, what's real, what we can vocalize, that's been around longer than Christian faith. You can be a Christian, that's fine if you want to be it. You're just a creature of your age. But I'm much beyond your age, he would say. I go back to the beginning of time. I've embraced the higher truth. Your truth is a superstition. That's what he would say. Now, here's another thing I've noticed in humanity. There are what I have... I made this term up Saturday morning at 5 a.m. typing this lesson. So it's possible someone else has used the term... And I just like co-opted it because I was half asleep and I have no memory of it. You know, like people who write songs that just happen to have been hits on the radio 30 years earlier when they were listening as kids. That's possible. Like I wrote this song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, one time. (laughs) Turns out there was this group named The Beatles that had the same song. Uh, But it's possible I've co-opted this. I don't think so. I think this one's uh, our, our class, okay? We'll claim this one. There, I call it the... Lewis always has syndromes. This is going to be the enlightened sheep syndrome. Okay? The enlightened sheep syndrome. Here it is. People have a tendency, like sheep, to follow wherever they are going. Okay? This is the sheep mentality. That's the sheep part of the syndrome. The enlightened sheep are those people who love thinking that they are cutting edge of culture and mental thought. And whatever is the latest and the greatest and the really cutting edge, there you will find them. Because they want to be the cool, smart, cultural, brilliant elite. Have you noticed anybody like that? And the really hilarious irony or pathetic irony, depending on whether you have a sense of humor at the moment, the really hilarious or pathetic irony is you had a bunch of people in England and Ireland and other places who say, oh, we're the smart people. All the smart people are following this John Tolan guy. We're going to follow him. And we'll show off to everybody how smart we are because now we're enlightened and now we know the things he knows. And we're so much better and smarter and grander than Christian faith. And why I call that irony is because if Tolan's saying anything useful at all, he's saying use your brain and think. And these people aren't thinking at all. They're saying, oh, we're going to use our brain and think. We'll do exactly what he tells us to. We'll go exactly where he leads us. Oh, we're just the brightest leaders in the world following him. See? All right, maybe not. But to me, that's the enlightened sheep syndrome. And we see it today. So a lot of people get together behind this and say, we're going to find a faith that's greater than Christianity. Christianity's is a, a time-bound little cult superstition. So let's have a church of greater good. And they build a chapel, the Essex chapel in London, united on this idea that we can think rationally beyond the bounds of Christianity. They unite on this in America, and they build the King's Chapel in Boston in the 1700s. They unite on this in America, and they take the Harvard Divinity School with them, unofficially affiliated with these people who unite on reason. And go beyond the simple bounds of Christian faith. And that is what group? The Unitarians. Who have united on this reason. Well thought continues and in comes to this picture Immanuel Kant. Kant is uh, the son of German Pietists. Prussian Pietists actually in what's now Russia. but, But we would consider him Germanic. And Kant is, is a huge player in the world of philosophy as well as in Christian thought. Kant is a huge player. Kant comes in and Kant says, okay, I'm going to continue in this stream of reasoned and rational thought. And Kant had studied Descartes. He'd studied Leibniz. He'd studied Newton. He'd studied Locke. He'd studied these people. Kant comes in and here's what he says. When you start thinking logically about your faith... When you start rationally examining why you believe in God. Here's the conclusion. We don't know. We don't know for certain if there's a God. We don't know for certain if there is an afterlife. We just don't know. By the same token, we don't know for certain that there is no God. We don't know for certain that there is not an afterlife. We just don't know. And let's just accept that. Now, does that mean we have no Christian duty? Does that mean we have no moral obligation? Absolutely not. Because reason will teach us that it's valid to be a good citizen. Reason will teach us that it's, it's a it, to, to be morally good is good for ourselves and good for society. And so Kant comes in and says the place for religion using this rational thought the place for religion is not a place of confidence in God or not it's a place where we together want to teach each other how to be morally good and that's where reason exists so under Kant comes another student another German the father of liberal theology Frederick Schleiermacher. you ought to type that name eight times in a paragraph I was thinking, bless his heart. I'm a lawyer. I can do name changes for a hundred and twenty dollar filing fee at the courthouse. I could have helped that boy out in twenty minutes. Frederick Schleimacher is uh, um, studies and reads Kant, and he reads all, and he's the cutting edge, and he says. That he's going to take that and apply it as a pastor would to a congregation. And here's what he comes up with. We humans have a God consciousness. It's this um, subtle little intuitive experience that we have. With some God or something that's out there. And there's just something that stirs within us. There's this intuitive consciousness And that's what's there for our faith. An intuitive, a God consciousness. He uses a German word that's kind of hard to translate. But it's a God conscious type thing that just exists somewhere deep in our psyche. And modern day scientists might, some modern day scientists might suggest it's even a genetic thing. So... Schleiermacher says, we've got this in our brain, this God consciousness. And he reinterprets the Bible from it. He reinterprets Jesus. You want to know how Jesus is the son of God? Oh, it's not that God came down in Jesus. It's that Jesus was real plugged into his God consciousness. And so that's how he's our exemplar. That's who we try to follow. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be plugged into our God consciousness. The Bible, it's just a collection of stories of people's experiences with their God consciousness. That's what it is And that's the way he interprets the the Christian faith And And it's almost as if he draws a line across the tablet And he says you can put science and the world and nature and things like that And you can use your rationality for those But if you want to talk about matters of faith and matters of religion Draw a line across the page and don't go rational on me You've got nowhere to go if you want to talk about your faith in religion, just go to your intuitive experience. By the way, the Bible. That's just a list of intuitive experiences put together by a bunch of people. This guy's like a pastor and a leading teacher in the seminaries in Europe. Okay? Now, he's changed our paradigm here. He's changed our model. Remember we started out, who decides truth? Catholic Church? It was the Catholic. Reformation comes along, it's scripture. Age of Reason, John Locke? It's logic. And in comes Schleiermacher and says, it all depends. It all depends. If you want to talk about scientific world truth, then reason does in fact establish what's true. But if you want to talk about religious truth, it's just... How do you feel about it? It's intuitive experience. It's your God consciousness. Give everybody their own break. You you walk your road, I'll walk mine. This is the age of liberal theology. That's where the label comes from. This is considered in theological circles. This is, quote, liberalism. That's the accepted label. You think whatever you want to think. That's your God consciousness, and that's where it's leading you. I'll think what I want to think. Don't try to reason with me about it. Reasoning belongs in the world of science, not in the world of faith. You follow me? If you do want to use reason and you do want to apply it to the Bible like some do, then it becomes a scientific study. Dale emailed me last night and said you left out Wellhausen. Or Wellhausen, I guess he'd pronounce it. So let's apply it here. It's not in your handout, but Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen is a German uh, German Bible professor, if you will. And uh, he teaches. And he says, I'll use reason. That didn't work, did it? Do I want to go to... I'm on six. I want to go to seven, don't I? Oh, yeah. He says, I'm going to use reasoning. And I'm going to use reasoning and logic. On Bible matters Not real matters of faith And a relationship with God But on studying the Bible So for example If you take your Bibles um, And you look at Genesis He says it's very apparent From looking at the first five books of the Bible The Pentateuch That uh, first of all Moses did not write these David Hume had already Put a big fuss on that. He says, uh, it's clear that this was written by a number of different people. And four different sources or histories were put together, probably by Ezra. And, and they have been put together and called the five books of Moses. But this comes from four different sources. So, for example, when you look at Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, according to Wellhausen, are two different traditions of creation. Neither to be counted as true historically. But two different accounts. One he calls the Elohistic tradition. One the Yahwistic or J is, is the, the initials. And he says J-E-P-D. These are the four sources. J is what they call the Yahwist source. And these are people who called God Yahweh. And so you'll find references to Yahweh in the first five books of Moses. And those references to Yahweh had to be from one particular tradition. And then there's another word for God that's used in the Old Testament in those five books, Elohim. That's what's used in uh, Genesis 1. So that comes from a whole different tradition. And then there's this part that, that seems very concerned with the priests and the high priest and the Levites. Because they get a lot of talk in some of the books of of Moses. So that must come from a whole different tradition, the priestly tradition. And then there's this other tradition that we're just going to call the Deuteronomic tradition. Because it seems more concerned with law. That must have been the lawyer's tradition. So there are these four different traditions out floating around. And then Ezra comes around uh, six, seven hundred years before Christ. and, and, And takes them and puts them all together into a Bible. You're thinking, well, that sounds kind of goofy. Okay. That was the leading academic thought. Until about the nineteen sixties, people started thinking for themselves instead of being enlightened sheep at schools, and realizing that, you know, it really didn't make sense. One guy took the same principles and applied it to three of Shakespeare's plays and decided that there were seventy two authors of Shakespeare. And that Shakespeare just put them all together because it's so fuzzy and so and, and, and a lot of leading scholars today dispute that approach but that's how reason was being used reason's being used if it's being used at all in religion to dispel and discount the accuracy of the bible that was higher education now there's a reaction to this liberalism that takes place in christian thought and to follow this through, we need to look at the reaction. There's a, what's called a neo-orthodox reaction and what's called a conservative reaction. By the way, care to guess which one we branch from? <laughs> On the nose. Um, the neo-orthodox reaction. And, and let me tell you some, one of the reasons this is important. I got given a book as a graduation gift from high school, Understanding the Old Testament. It's a textbook used at a number of divinity schools, including the Vanderbilt Divinity School at the time, I believe. And it just sets out as factual the Velhausen, or it's also called the graf Velhausen hypothesis, that there are these four independent sources. And maybe Velhausen's wrong, but if he's wrong, it's because there are six instead of four, and da 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 And you'll find this in lots of the books that you'll find at even conservative Christian bookstores. Because there is this mentality, this enlightened sheep mentality, that says, I'm not going to be an independent thinker. I'm just going to claim I am and then follow those people who claim to be independent thinkers. The neo-Orthodox come around and and they come in the, the early 1900s and say, you know, this liberalism, everybody you know, do their own thing, believe their own thing, just intuitive experience and don't reason through it, really leaves everybody kind of empty and hollow. And so you have two in Europe and two in America leaders in this neo-Orthodox movement. Neo means new, neonatal, you know, newborn, uh, neo-conservatives, the new conservatives. The uh, uh, Neo-Orthodox is a new oldness, <laughs> orthodoxy. It's, okay, we're going to believe again in a trinity. We're going to believe again in a personal savior. We're going to believe again in, a, in a, 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 an atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We're going to believe again in a relationship with God Almighty. We're going to embrace the orthodoxy of the Christian faith in a new way. And so enter this picture Karl Barth and Emil Bruner. Those are the two from, from Europe that were the principles. Emil Bruner actually got the head start. Karl Barth, probably the bigger influence. It just took longer to translate his works out of German. But these two fellas come in with this neo-orthodoxy. And, and, and what they're saying and what Karl Barth is saying, for example, Karl Barth says reason should never take the place of God or become God. Reason, under the liberal thinkers and liberal theology, reason has become their God. I think he was right. Then he says, now as for the conservatives, the Bible-thumping fundamentalists, he would say, they are also idolaters. But instead of reason being the idol they worship, the Bible is. And the Bible's taken the place of God for them. They worship the Bible and so he said the answer to this needs to be to worship the god who is revealed in the bible but he says we'll recognize that the bible itself is a, a, an accumulation of human errors so we don't look to the bible to be pristine and pure the bible's not the word of god except to the extent that it leads someone to jesus the word of god and in that way, Bart doesn't have to deal with questions of scriptural integrity. Bart and Bruner don't have to deal with questions of how is this right biblically or wrong or is this an inconsistency in the Bible or a consistency or is this right or wrong by what we see in nature in the world or archaeology. They say none of that's relevant. What's relevant here is it's a collection of stories that teach us about Jesus and yet embrace fully the orthodox position. It teaches us about the Trinity, even though it doesn't use those words. It teaches us that Jesus came, he was God incarnate, he died, was on the third day resurrected and ascended unto heaven. Those are the the Christ-centered elements. So he could teach orthodoxy without embracing scripture. Uh, In the United States, there were two brothers who were huge in this, Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother Helmut Richard Niebuhr. And uh, Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s authors the serenity prayer. That if you go to any 12-step program you pray, it's it's slightly different. But his was, God give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things that should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. He would teach and preach An active, it's as if he could have taught David Fleming's sermon this morning. He just didn't believe in the integrity of the Bible he was teaching it from. In the way that we do. Does that make sense? That was one reaction, neo-orthodoxy. The word of God is the truth only in the sense that the word of God is Jesus. Not in the sense that the word of God is the Bible. Now, that's one reaction. The other reaction to liberalism was the conservatism reaction. And I've selected two particularly strong people that God brought up in our tradition movement. By ours, I don't mean Southern Baptist. I mean conservative evangelical. Uh, The first is a fellow named Jay... Whoops, he's the second. I did that wrong. Let's get them both up on the screen. The first was a fellow named Jay... Gresham Machen And Machen was at Princeton At the Divinity School When liberalism was The rampage And when all of the Enlightened sheep syndrome Professors said Oh Schleiermacher Has written this profound book We're independent thinkers we're going to think Like he does and they followed Him uh, Machen stood up and said Time out this isn't biblical This is not biblical. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It's inerrant. We're a Presbyterian school. We go back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we have a class on. You can go get it off the Internet. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And and I'm standing on that and I'm not changing and I'm not going to let this divinity school go that way. They said, well, (laughs) fine, we're going that way anyway. You can come along or not. It's your choice. he said you bet it's my choice and he quit and he founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and uh it was an incredible seminary that's produced some incredible people so Machen makes his stand by the way Machen was one of the Greek books that I had to use in college his Greek text fantastic first year Greek book um, Machen makes his stand out of Westminster Seminary. One of his students winds up being Francis Schaeffer. Francis is there for a year right before Machen dies. Francis Schaeffer is an incredible fellow. Um, in the world of academia, Schaeffer gets a little poo-pooed because he's not considered among the academic elite. Francis Schaeffer was a free thinker for God. And he didn't pursue an academic route. And yet he wrote a lot of things that had popular appeal within the Christian movement. He wrote them from his little Swiss chalet, visiting a number of uh, European universities at the time. And his writings, sometimes in an effort to, to make something just crystal clear fit perfectly he seems in my opinion to wedge a piece of a puzzle in where it just may not fit exactly it's a lot like my grandmother does working puzzles I'm just joking grandmother to see if you're listening um he 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 wedges those pieces. actually she stops me from doing it truth be told because I would want to just wedge that piece in we can make it fit she says, well, then it's not going to fit later. No, no, I can fix that one too. <laughs> Trust me, in the end, it may not look like the picture on the box, but it, it will all fit. Um, Schaefer has that tendency, I believe. Uh, but within the realm of that, recognizing that none of us are perfect scholars, the fella had a profound grasp and hold on truth. He saw the big picture. And a lot of people don't. Here's what Francis Schaefer would tell you. Francis Schaeffer would say, first of all, he stands straight in the Reformation movement. Um, He would say that the Reformationists got it right. Yes, we have minds, but our minds are fallen. And you want to know if God exists? It's okay to use your brain. But you go to Scripture and you let the Holy Spirit work. It's not as simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4. So when you want to teach someone about Christ who may not believe in God at all, he says there's an academic way to proceed. But don't ever proceed that way alone or you will not have success. You need to also proceed with scripture. You need to also proceed prayerfully with the spirit of God working, especially by the way you show your love for that person and other people. That's the big picture. And so here's what Schaeffer would say. Schaeffer would say something along the lines of... Let's see, I can do it here. He'd say, here's the, the Christian worldview. The Christians believe in this world. This is the Christian world. It's taught in the Bible. And it's the basics we talked about last week. Worldview. You see that Uh, sort of see if I can make that a little better. That's the Christian worldview. That's the world in which I live. The Christian worldview is a world that says um, there's a God. He's real. He made us and he made us in his image to be in a relationship with him. We sinned and broke the fellowship with him and we have a longing to be back with him. But this God who exists is the real source of what's real, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's pure. And he came to us in Jesus Christ and he restored the relationship by paying the price for our disobedience and our sin. And so through faith in Jesus, we are restored to a relationship with this God. Still in our fallen bodies awaiting the day that he redeems the whole world when his plan is complete. But that day will come and we'll live with him eternally. Those Christian basics, he says, that's the Christian worldview. And the thing is, is you and I live there. And we know we live there because we believe it. Now, what about the person who doesn't believe it? What about the person who says, I don't believe there's a God. I have a different worldview. This is my pagan worldview or my atheist worldview. I believe that there is no God. I believe that we got here by chance. I believe that we're a result of billions of years of time and chance and evolution. And we just happen to be here. There is no God who made us. There is no God who defines right and wrong. We're all stuck here on a dirt clod in outer space. Doing the best we can for the days we've got. Now, Schaefer says, people may have that worldview, but anybody with that worldview, do you know where they really live? Schaefer says, they live here because ours is truth. He says, we've got the true worldview. I, our worldview is the accurate one. They may believe that over there, but their life is in our worldview. And so, somewhere, they live inconsistent with what they believe to be true. For example, if someone says, I don't believe there's a God, Schaefer says, then challenge them. How do you know that there's right and wrong? Because you can't use those words. You can't say right and wrong in, in, a, in a real big sense. Because you've got no outside measurement of morality. If we don't all agree that this is the color green. Because there's something outside all of us that we agree is the standard. That's going to say this is green. If we have no standard and we all walk into the room. Well I can decide that that's not green. That's uh, blah blah. No it's green. No it's not. It's blah blah. Prove to me it's green. The only way you're going to prove to me it's green is by going to another standard outside of it. He says the only way ultimately anybody's got right and wrong and can use value words like that is a standard outside of the world. We've got one, God. That's wrong. What do you mean? It's ungodly. Let me show you who God is. Don't come to me and use those words if you don't have a God. Don't ever try and tell me that Hitler was wrong when he had enough support of the... He had the majority vote. He was voted into office. How can you say he was wrong? Well, of course he was wrong. Why? Because every moral fiber in you that shouts he's wrong doesn't live in that pagan worldview. That's proof. You live in a Christian worldview. Your life is inconsistent with your thoughts. The only consistent worldview you will find that makes sense of who we are and how we live and how we feel. Our shortcomings, our failures, our drive to do better, our desires for our children. The only worldview that truly makes sense is the Christian worldview. Schaeffer doesn't say that you sit there with most people and you bring them to faith by a logical recounting of evolution versus creation. He says, no. You look at what this is called presuppositional apologetics. What, do you, you know, what are you supposing before you ever start any discussion? What do you live on? What's your worldview? How, what turns your compass and points it north? You figure that out. And anybody that's not a Christian does not live consistent, does not live consistent with their worldview. And you can find that point where their life is in conflict with their belief. And when you find that point, you hone in on it. And you love them, and you pray for them, and you use Scripture to show them the truth. It's pretty incredible. Because it's an understanding that God did not just make us human computers. We got hearts, we got spirits, and his spirit calls to us and draws us. And I don't believe in God because I took my brain and I put it on a shelf and I decided to live under the line of reason for my faith, like Schleiermacher. I didn't draw some line and say, okay, I'm going to use my brain when I go to the lawsuit tomorrow morning in the court and I argue this breach of contract case. But I'm going to put my brain aside when I come into Sunday school on Sunday and preach an inspirational message so that you go out there and feel good about your life. No. My brain's involved in this. as Ron showed me again his scripture. He's got more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> and through the Gideons, he comes to faith. What's your degrees in, Ron? Neurobiology and biophysics. How old were you when you became a Christian? 52 years old. 52 years old. And did you have to leave all of your degrees in neurobiology and biophysics on the shelf when you became a Christian? No, sir. Because God uses our brains and He uses our hearts and His Spirit draws us. So I don't leave my brain on a shelf and I'm not a Christian because it feels good. I'm a Christian because it's the truth. There's a God who made me and he wants to live with me eternally so bad he died for me. And I'm going to blow that off. Scripture does make bold claims for itself. That it's God breathed, not man made. That it's useful for teaching, that it's useful for rebuking, that it's useful for correcting, it's useful for training, it's useful for doing things that involve your mind. So that you are thoroughly equipped for every good work that involves your mind, that involves your heart, that involves your spirit. So we study and do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who has no reason to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Who determines truth? God does. That's the answer. Are the Catholics right? Well, to an extent, the church can correctly handle the Word of God and help us understand truth. Are the Protestants right? Yes. Reformation movement, Scripture. But we must be careful not to exalt Scripture. We don't worship the Bible. We worship who the Bible points to, but the Bible itself is a word of truth from God. So when we see these snippets of truth in various different places, we vet what we hear. We measure it by God's word. We measure it by God's spirit. We look to see who's doing the writing or who's doing the speaking or who's doing the teaching. Anybody gets upset with David Fleming's sermon? then I would suggest, first of all, you get on your knees and you thank God that you know where he's coming from because his heart's in the right place. Whether I'm telling you, as someone who stands up in front of people, it doesn't always come out the way you want it to. Please cut him or anybody who's teaching you some slack if they don't always get it just right the way you want it. We're doing the best we can. But I'm here to tell you, you'd be thankful for the worldview. You'd be thankful and you look with spiritual discernment on what's going on. You want to see to it, Colossians 2.8, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. Hey, I'm going to be an independent thinker and follow the guy in front of me. Rather than on the Christ. And finally... (laughs) These current thoughts, if you've noticed anything since the Gnostics had the real claim on truth in the 100s, and we go through every century and someone's got some new avant-garde claim of figuring out God and truth. And you want to know the only thing that stayed consistent? Jesus Christ and orthodox truth. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the honor of teaching this class, and, and I pray that you will help me correctly handle the the word and... and, and that your spirit will get beyond what I do and what I say to convict people. Not just of of a need for you intellectually, Lord, but a need for you personally. Convict people of a need to link back into their creator. Who loves them, calls to them, and died for them. And put that conviction in their hearts and their minds. Put their spirits at peace in you. Through Jesus, I pray, amen.